You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. That's Max Linsky. That's Evan Ratliff. It's 2016. 2016. Welcome. To- <laughs> <laughs> Is your resolution in 2016 to just be more excited? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It, I'm, glad, I'm glad you picked well, up on that. Fake man. it till you make it, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a new year. We've got a new, the podcast room has changed. I'm now sitting uh, across on the opposite side of the table from where I used to. Uh, I'm feeling good over here. Uh, I'm feeling very good about the show we have lined up for Who you is today. Uh, well, thanks. Wow, thanks. Thanks for asking, Evan. Uh, it's Venkatesh Rao. Um, you guys know Venkatesh Rao's right? I know that you've been trying to get Venkatesh Rao on the podcast I've for been, a very long time. Every time we have a meeting about who's going to come on the podcast, I say, I'm going to get Venkatesh Rao. Now I did it. Uh, <laughs> Venkatesh Rao is, in the best sense of the word, a cult writer. He writes about economics, history, technology in a way I've never ever come across. Um, he is deeply rooted in both philosophy and Silicon Valley and is very good around a Seinfeld reference to explain income equal- inequality or something like that. He, he um, really, really writes in a way that is totally unique and it's a deep reflection of how his mind works. So I think it's going to be great. His site is uh, Ribbon Farm. I think he's the first person we've had on the show who does not write for any publications. That's correct. He started this blog many years ago. Um, It is a totally unique work of his own. He actually has brought in some other writers now and he also does consulting, which is actually how he makes a living. So he's also an interesting guest for us in that writing is not his, uh, it's not his pay gig. It's how he drums up interest in his mind. If you want to uh, drum up interest in people's minds, how would you do that, Aaron? I would start emailing them first, but I would I wouldn't just email one. I'd email lots of those people, and to do so, I would need Mailchimp. Over seven million businesses use it. Uh, my Fact business check eight million people. Over okay, in eight the last million. year they've added millions of people. Uh, we we can't even keep up with how many people are using Mailchimp, um, but they've been supporting us since the very beginning. So uh, as we launch into this new year, I want to send a double extra special. Uh, futuristic thank you to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Finkatesh Rao. Welcome, Venkatesh Rao. 
How do you describe what you do, or how do you describe uh, the kinds of writing you do? I, I was trying to describe it to someone, and I, I said that uh, a Gonzo Economist was probably the closest uh, I could come to describing it. Yeah, that, that's an interesting starting point because the answers to what I do and uh, how I write are actually two very different things. Because, uh, well, most um, of my income is from the consulting side of what I do. Yeah, but specifically on the writing end. I actually wouldn't describe myself as a, a gonzo economist, like uh, the term gonzo in the sense of, you know, a Hunter S. Thompson-esque uh, <laughs> yes. experiential living. It's like people who call themselves gonzo tend to be extremely interesting people. Their lives are interesting. Like if if you tell them to tell you their story, any sort of gonzo, whether it's a gonzo economist or a gonzo cultural explorer, um, you hear an interesting story. and if So you you're ask, saying your life is too boring. Yeah, to my <laughs> life is fundamentally too boring. So, uh, But I do think there's an, a relationship to the Gonzo uh, world. So I actually said this at one point in one of my posts that uh, while I'm not uh, myself a Gonzo writer, uh, I do something I call Seeking Density in the Gonzo Theater. That's the title of one of my posts. And by that I mean the internet is a highly... Um, sort of stimulating and rich gonzo space to be in. And a lot of people who are crafting lives for themselves primarily on the internet are doing so in a very interesting way. Like their lives are worth sort of almost turning into pieces of performance art online. And they do that and they do it very well. And to me, I, I view myself as a spectator of all that activity and uh, almost sort of uh, trying to mine uh, sort of the denser nuggets of insight from uh, what the actual gonzos are doing. Take the startup world, for instance. Yep. It's a world that's very gonzo in a way. There's no rules, there's no rule book, there's no maps. And if you're a spectator of that world, it is a lot of fun. And there's a lot of dense insight to be mined from, say, somebody writing a long medium post about their startup journey. Yeah, you don't have to like take it at face value, but you don't have to reject it as um, you know narcissistic. Um, identity creation either. Usually those stories are like texts that you can then mine for, all right, this is actually telling me something really interesting about the way uh, the startup scene is evolving, for instance, and you might get an idea for writing from that. Uh, take, for example, the whole artisan sector of the uh, lifestyle business world, like, you know, Portland, Etsy, yep. running little businesses, things like that. And I wrote an article called You're Not an Artisan, which is sort of a satire poking at the pretensions of, uh, you know, medieval artisan identity <laughs> on the part yeah. of these guys and have some sympathy for them. But there's so much fun to like just uh, psychoanalytically unpack. And yes, I have written that article. I don't consider myself one of them. Right. And their lives are way more interesting than mine. But I write about that. Okay, so there's this raw material of of the texts that the Internet is producing at a sort of a dizzying rate. And then uh, I feel like a lot of your work starts from that text and then zooms out a little bit on it. So you take the idea um, in, your, in your newest, I think you call it a season, your newest season of writing, um, which I want to talk to you about how that came about, um, but it's called it's called Breaking Smart. And one of the, the earliest essays in it discusses the idea that young people um, within the economic and political spheres um, of, of today uh, have this unprecedented power to sort of make it up as they go along. They are uh, shedding many of the um, sort of rules and gatekeepers of the institution. So 
I don't think you necessarily take that on as a, a negative or positive statement, but you've taken something you've seen, say, in Silicon Valley and then extrapolated into this larger thing. And you often do so not from a I'm just arguing with you way, but from a database perspective. So when you look at that and you say you make a statement like young people have this unprecedented power, how do you research that? Like, how do you how do you confirm that thing that you've seen is not just a. Uh, you know, a, a popular myth? Because I feel like a lot of your work takes on these myths and, um, I mean, myths sounds like they're false, these ideas that are developing out of the technological world and sort of interrogates them. So Breaking Smart is, I would say, sort of a different body of work from my uh, main blog, uh, Ribbon Farm. Yeah. And the two are different in the sense of um, Ribbon Farm is more of like my personal research lab almost, mm -hmm. and uh, its tagline, Experiments and Refactored Perception, is my uh, attempt at uh, sort of uh, summarizing the essence of one process of interrogating realities, which is uh, you take something that seems very conventional and ordinary and very familiar, and you try to make it seem unfamiliar so that it kind of pops, because uh, familiar things, they tend to get invisible. And um, even newer familiar things, like, you know, doing a startup, it's become such a familiar script by now that it it's almost like a a conventional token you exchange in conversations yes. in the form of what are you doing? I'm doing a startup, right? It's a very yeah. quick, compact way of talking. It has its own cliches. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what I think of as refactoring is one way to interrogate that, which is can you take the familiar and make it seem unfamiliar? Can you take the normal and make it look weird? Right. And this involves like some, uh, what you might consider sometimes very cheap tricks like uh, inverting uh, status assumptions, like, you know, sure. often those cheap tricks, if you do them for their own sake, it comes across as like uh, smug and superior and trivializing real lives. But if you do it with the intent of understanding better what you're looking at, then it, it starts to get interesting. Like if you invert the idea that uh, people who do handcrafted artisan work um, they should be sort of laughed at rather than revered as like uh, artists, you get to some insight. And if you don't actually go looking for that uh, in your interrogation, you end up uh, sort of just being small-minded about it. Right. So that's, I would say, what I do on Ribbon Farm, which is interrogate conventional realities and make them make the normal look weird. And it's... Uh, test of validity is not that you go put in hours of research on the ground like a reporter right. would or an ethnographer would. You need a lot more resources to do that, and bloggers don't have that. The test of validity is really how much does it resonate and ring true to readers and hold up a mirror that they declare is an honest mirror. Yes. And that, that to me, has been always a sort of reliable test where uh, if I write an article and somebody comes back to me and says... I live this life and you've described my own anxieties or sort of um, uh, sense of uh, not understanding who I am much more clearly and I now understand myself better. That's to me a kind of proof. It may not, I think it, it's in the spirit of science. It's, it's sort of like a scientific sensibility. It may not have the methods you typically call scientific, like, you know, uh, empirical testing and interviewing and statistical regression, but it's it's in the it has a scientific sensibility. But and and you often you are building on other people's research or at least incorporating that into oh definitely that uh, and, mix. and this goes back to what you said where on the one hand one source of sort of uh, well raw material for me is the live 
evolving, shaping up culture of the internet right now. But the other, like you said, I zoom out, but I zo- I don't zoom out into empty space. I zoom out into, well, other sources like books, uh, uh, books that are very influential, not in the academic sense of uh, I need to like reference 50 other things to be considered credible and legitimate. But uh, as a blogger, you are not institutionally bound, so you have the freedom to pick only those points of reference that right. you find actually useful, right? It's not a PhD thesis that exactly. you have to defend. And I've been in that world as well, so it's <laughs> it's a huge relief for me to operate in this way because now when I say look at the startup world and I can back into, say, Peter Drucker or William White or Alfred Chandler and sort of try and connect big, heavy, and really solidly researched ideas and thinking that took decades to mature and connect them to these things that seem very ephemeral and hopefully sort of build bridges between the two, that's one kind of refactoring. So that works pretty well if you want to take the normal and make it weird. But since you brought up Breaking Smart... And this is a project you did as um, sort of a a writer-in-residence with uh, Andreessen Horowitz, yes? Yes. uh, I was working with them for a year researching their main investment thesis, which is software is eating the world. Yeah. And I wouldn't call that so much uh, a a sort of uh, writer's R&D lab project of like interrogating something and sort of um, questioning it, but more like take the conventional wisdom of Silicon Valley itself. And so much of it is tacit. It's like, um, you know, the iceberg cliche, like one-tenth of what Silicon Valley is about. The spirit of Silicon Valley uh, shows up in like blogs by venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, uh, startup stories. You go to a startup conference, you kind of see the theater play out. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. But there's so much else. There's like a a body of tacit knowledge that has taken 50 to 60 years to evolve. And it's it's a worldview. It's a very uh, sort of well-formed, fully realized worldview with its own ideas of politics, culture, economics. In my mind, it's as well-developed as what you might call uh, traditional uh, bodies of intellectual uh, discourses on the East Coast, like, you know, the art world or the politics world in D.C. or um, uh, the... Uh, traditional progressive uh, political world of uh, social justice, all those are, so it's comparable to those things as like a a whole civilizational level doctrine. Uh, But the difference is that it's 90% tacit invisible. And uh, whereas something like say, standard progressivism or New York uh, critical theory kind of thinking, those things I would say are more like 50 to 60% uh, visible and only 30 to 40% hidden, whereas Silicon Valley, if you just know the tip of the iceberg, it looks like a very immature new kid on the block that uh, really can't punch in the same weight class as uh, academically fully realized uh, bodies of work out on the East Coast or in Europe. So breaking smart, at least the way I approached it was, Let's make this whole invisible body of thinking much more visible, make up language and terminology and sort of uh, a coherent set of mappings between ideas so that we are able to even talk about it explicitly. So if you if you look at the entire project as a prompt, the, the prompt being software eating the world, the very first question is, is what is software? And then what does it mean that it's eating the world? And it, it takes quite a while to even 
define what software mm-hmm. is and yep. then uh, what has software done. So it's almost like before you can uh, before you can say a, a single thing about technology, you need like a like extended glossary of each of these terms. And I think you do that very well. Um, is sort of start at at the start of what software is the third major mm-hmm. um, uh, soft technology after money and written um, language. Written language, exactly. Yes. Um, which is. Not a common place you would see a technology article starting from, yeah. um, but you start there, which is prior to technology. Um, but I would say the bulk of the writing goes into the future and becomes predictive, or at least yeah. speculatively predictive. What is it like when you move out of the move from history and move into the future in talking about these issues? There's a couple of interesting things to say about that question. Uh, First, you're exactly right that um, it takes a while to even get to the starting line in conversations about tech. And if you're not in Silicon Valley immersed in sort of the culture of meetups and online groups and hacker news and certain parts of Reddit, you don't know what you don't know. Like when I meet people outside tech and uh, they try to form an opinion around, say, random phrases that are used often in tech, like, you know, a full stack startup or a unicorn. I mean, these these terms have like so much context to them that if you walk into the conversation um, unprepared, you'll understand only about 10% of what is being said. Uh, and of that, you'll be able to make so little sense that uh, you can't... Uh, productively either engage the conversation or learn from it or leverage it to sort of uh, uh, your own ends of whether you're doing a startup or whatever else you're doing in the world. Uh, You know, you might be a writer on the East Coast. You might be a philosopher in Europe. It doesn't matter what you're doing. There's a long distance to the starting line. So, yes, one explicit aim of the project was to bring the baseline up. But getting to the second part of your question of uh, predicting the future, I say early on in the series that I'm not interested in predicting the how and, uh, or sorry, the why and what of the future. So it's not going to be like 2050, we'll have driverless cars replacing regular cars. It's not that kind of prediction, but it's a prediction in the sense of how the future will come about. What are the mechanisms that uh, are creating the future versus the mechanisms that are fighting a rear guard action versus the mechanisms that are fruitlessly, you know, uh, sucking up energy around the world. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, for example, one of the mechanisms by which the future is coming about is empowered teenagers and 14-year-olds. Right. If you're a 14-year-old who's uh, given a laptop and access to a few programming learning tools, you can, well, do something like Napster by the time you're 18 or 19. Like yes. Sean Fanning was uh, not even 20 when he did that, right? So that's that's an element of how the future is coming about. Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, the online education gurus over at Creative Live. Creative Live offers great online classes to help people enhance or dig into new skills like photography, design, music production, and business savvy. That is one I could use. Business savvy is not something I natively possess. So you can watch their classes in a massive online catalog. There's always something streaming, and it's always free. You'll be learning from the best with experts like 
Ryan Holiday, Alex Bloomberg. He's been on this show. They'll show you how to hone your creative skills and be the best at doing what you love. So I want you to go to creativelive.com slash longform. That's creativelive, L-I-V-E, dot com slash longform. You'll get 20% off any of Creative Live's classes. You'll be joining millions of students from around the world getting ready to make your living doing what you love. Thanks, Creative Live. Here I am back with Venkatesh Rao. How do you know what you can and can't sort of put predict into the future, I guess? That's a legitimate question, and there are people who are really good at thinking about it and answering yeah. uh, that question. And um, uh, Philip Tetlock, one of my favorite uh, thinkers and writers, is one of those people. And he's the guy who's behind uh, uh, what makes good forecasters. Uh, foxes are better f- uh, forecasters than hedgehogs, where fox and hedgehog are those archetypes of people who think with multiple models versus a single big model. And he had a book out recently called Super Forecasters. So that's I think sort of the legitimate uh, world of people who forecast are good at it and put skin in the game, play the markets, hedge funds, whatever have you. Yeah. And uh, those that's the world of uh, legitimate prediction as a science. But um, outside of the idea of prediction as a profession that's that you can actually develop skills at and get better at and investors do that, futurists do that, certain kinds of like you know, weather forecasters do that. Outside of that... And the entire Silicon Valley as an industry is doing that in some ways by putting money into itself. Yes. So the investor class is definitely, in a sense, trying to predict the future because they actually have to choose between things. But I would not say the entrepreneur class is predicting the future. They're Mm. creating it. They're creating possible futures, and it's up to the market and uh, venture capitalists and consumers to actually make that their futures happen, right? If there's like six different startups trying to make, say personal drones happen. None of those six people knows for sure that they are going to be the one crafting the future of personal drones, if in fact personal drones are going to be part of the future. But they're all betting they they want to be one of the options that history picks, for example. So I wouldn't say entrepreneurs are in the business of predicting, but investors definitely are. But more broadly, Breaking Smart, I wanted it to be a useful resource for everybody because software eating the world, the operative term there is world and Silicon Valley is one tiny little corner of it. I want uh, to see sort of productive engagement of the future from everybody around the world. Like um, my dad, who's in his 70s, I just uh, gave him one of my old laptops with Windows 10 installed and I spent a couple of hours sort of tutoring him on the basics of navigating the thing. So that's you know, participating in the future. Then you've got young children uh, just learning their first uh, programming language. You've got uh, uh, people in uh, Kenya using like mobile phones uh, to do banking, right? That's part of the future. So it's a very, very broad canvas on which the future is developing. And most of these people who have a stake in the future have some sort of informal sense of trying to predict it and participate it participate in it productively, they're not super forecasters. They're not people who learn the techniques that Philip Tetlock says work. They're not uh, in the professional world of hedge fund managers who are sort of have have to carefully place billion dollar bets on particular scenarios. They have to do much more basic acts of prediction, like, for example, a 14-year-old has to choose whether to be a follow-the-rules credentialist and give in to, say, a tiger mom's uh, 
insistence that uh, he or she get good grades and go to Stanford and get an MBA and or become a doctor and a lawyer. So a 14-year-old literally has to make the choice. Am I choosing that script or am, am I going to just uh, uh, get passably good enough grades in school and devote all my spare time and weekends and free energy and creativity to uh, learning to hack or, or building drones or doing synthetic biology in the lab? If you're talking about, say, a kid with... Uh, uh, two parents, both with PhDs, both with tenured faculty positions yep. uh, and, uh, you know, with black turtlenecks uh, doing like ponderous academic things at uh, one of the cathedrals of learning. And this uh, kid is being inspired to like go the same route, emulate parents and go that track. You've got two very different stories playing out, two different choices about the future being made. And uh, you and I can sit here um uh, in our 30s and 40s and sort of ask ourselves predicting the future which of these two kids is predicting the future better and uh, one of my conclusions is that the first kid who's uh, choosing to sort of uh, do well in school well enough yep. to, so, so I'm not recommending sort of you know being, being <laughs> a dropout uh, you know a crazy breaking bad uh, kid but you know do well enough to sort of uh, not get into trouble but then develop uh, develop other interests and creativity and hacking skills and just making life up as you go along. This connects back to the Gonzo theme. Uh, you and I grew up in a world where it, the imperative to be Gonzo in order to be effective was not an existential choice. Like uh, I'm almost the opposite. I'm I'm actually like the second kid we we're talking about. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. What were you like at fourteen? Uh, Remember, uh, when I was, uh, so I was born in 1974, so when I was 14, that was 1988, just before yeah. the fall of the uh, wall, I was in eighth grade, I had uh, learned... Where uh, where were you living? Yeah, I was in India. In India. In India, and I had learned uh, programming, I had learned basic, I had, uh, I, I was a decent programmer, and I was one of the kids in my class who was getting into computers and yeah. uh, knew how to program. Growing up as a kid in India, the script was you become an engineer or a doctor, otherwise you're a failure. Uh, engineer, doctor, chartered accountant, there were like, you know, four paths you could take and still be a respectable member of the middle class. And you had to go to college if you were in the middle class. You had to get into a good college. So it was like a pretty straight script, and I followed that script. Yeah. And in India at that time, that was a smart thing to do, because uh, unlike in the U.S., where there's a lot you can do if you fall off the script, because yeah. it, it, the U.S. is a very, very forgiving place, where if you fall off script, there's a million other ways you can make your way creatively in the world. In India, if uh, you're a middle-class kid today and you fall off script, it, it's still a bad place to be. Uh, I'm curious what you like felt like the competition was. Like, so you became an aerospace engineer out of out of that background. Mm -hmm. In my upbringing in America, if you kind of show up and like turn in your homework, you get to go to college, and if you you can go to a pretty good college, and you know if you can afford it, say, and you know you're never really cold from the herd here. I assume that in India. To be what you just described, to 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 stay the path and, and to become an engineer is still incredibly competitive. Uh, definitely, I mean, uh, there's this sort of great sorting process that happens where if you get into one of the top engineering universities or medical universities, you pretty much have a sweet ride, and you can almost slack off, which is what I did. I got into the IIT, which is uh, 
the top layer of the engineering pyramid. And honestly, I slacked off right after freshman year. And yeah. I started focusing. I got on the swim team, spent a lot of time swimming. I did a lot of reading. And I just sort of did the minimum required to get through my mechanical engineering degree. And after that, I came to the U.S. for grad school in aerospace engineering. That's falling apart. I mean, whether you're in the U.S. or in China or in India or in sub-Saharan Africa, that script is failing. It's working for a shrinking number of people. And I would have to say that in a way it hasn't worked for me. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, when you're you're uh, you're 18, uh, 18, 20 years old, uh, doing a little swimming, uh, reading, reading, reading some some books and you're you're still on this sort of scripted life are you were you starting to have these you know kind of heady theoretical thoughts and and how did that absolutely interface not. with your engineering absolutely no. not uh, I, I would say i was blind and deaf and did not know anything about how the world worked until i was about 25 it took till almost 35 before i actually cut loose from the script so the script is a very very powerful thing and the script honestly wasn't working for me so i went the whole course two and a half years into the postdoc, put in a bunch of academic applications, uh, got like uh, one call back and that was like a terrible place I didn't want to go. I had the option of either, you know, getting on the tenure track holding pattern in a second postdoc, third postdoc, you know, the the usual academic uh, thing, or I could do something else. And I took an industry job and uh, sort of um, at the same time I started my blog in 2007. Let's see, that would be, uh, I was... uh, 33 at the time. So 33, I would say, starting Ribbon Farm was my break from the script moment. And it took, I would say, four years and a couple of uh, big hits and slash dottings where till it became like an actual viable life option. So think about the cost of this choice that you make at age 14, whether to be a script person or somebody who makes it up as they go along. So I'm interested, I, I understand that, that for you, the, the blog is sort of a line in the sand, but what was going on with your mind? I mean, you know, to be able to write about Silicon Valley and compare it to, say, the European socialist tradition, you can't just wake up one morning as an engineer and do that. Did did you become a really deep reader? Reading is a very interesting part of uh, breaking smart, as as it were, of breaking free of scripts. Like think about how your reading tastes uh, develop. Whether you read one book a year or whether you read fifty books a year, how do they develop? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the first true decision I made to read something was a decision not to read something, which was the Lord of the Rings. In undergrad. A lot of the other heavy readers around me were obsessed with the Lord of the Rings and our the literary scene, so to speak, in IIT Bombay was its Ur document, its Bible was the Lord of the Rings. And I'm still in good friends with the people who are sort of the kingpins of that scene. And we make jokes about this now, (laughs) but almost as an act of defiance of I'm going to freaking make up my own reading and writing <laughs> identity, I refused to read The Lord of the Rings. And I eventually did in grad school, and I enjoyed it. It's a good book. <laughs> but, but that act of defiance was the start of uh, developing an intellectual identity for me. And uh, after that, I started making more such choices, and two kinds of choices. One, the decision to not read what everybody else around you is reading, and the decision to positively read that Uh, things that other people have no frame of reference for and react to with, uh, why on earth are you reading this? So uh, to continue the trajectory, what I did was in grad school, 
my uh, discipline was control theory, which is, uh, think of it as applied math that uh, is used in the engineering of things like uh, uh, autopilots and um, cruise control mechanisms in cars, uh, uh, navigation for missiles, that sort of thing. That's what control theory is. What I was reading in grad school, that's when I started making conscious choices about what to read. So one of my big conscious choices was to read a huge amount about, uh, well, the then sexy field of uh, complexity science. So, you know, chaos theory, complexity theory, swarms, things like that. And that actually led me to make some of my first real choices of what to do, what to study. Like my PhD ended up being not in classical control theory, but a mix of classical controls, artificial intelligence and operations research, where I brought in a lot of the ideas from uh, uh, chaos and complexity theory and things like that. But even that was not a fully formed sort of reader identity because in a way, complexity and chaos theory and Santa Fe type stuff is like the alt rock music of um, geeks, right? I mean, it's like uh, if, if, if in 1990 you wanted to be part of the alt scene, you would listen to Nirvana. If you were a geek, you would be reading Douglas Hofstadter and you would be reading um, complexity theory books and K uh, James Gleek and things like that. So it was not so much a rejection of you know, sort of social reading norms, but consciously picking one of the sort of alternate, I'm putting, making scare quotes in the area, <laughs> but one of the alternate ways of developing an identity through reading. And I would say my true break came when I made my first real choice that had nothing to do with social influence, but just something that piqued my curiosity. And that was probably Francis Fukuyama's End of History, which I read probably in uh, 96 or 97, I'm not sure when, but around that time. And it was the first choice that I could not explain either to mainstream people or to my alt buddies who read complexity theories. It's like, why reading this random political historian who's using Hegel to analyze the end of democracy? And since then, it's been a, I, I sort of became a, an, a, you know, an awakened conscious reader when right. I was actually making choices. And it's been 15 years of that, and that's how you end up being a, able to apply European sociological thinking to startup scenes and things like that. You have to have a unique perspective. And since we are all kind of uh, not unique snowflakes uh, so much, you can only have a unique perspective if you've traced sort of a unique path in developing your own intellectual identity, which is a lot of unique reading. When you started Ribbon Farm in uh, 2007, and you, you had this sort of compound knowledge of, I don't know, it sounds like about eight years of reading some pretty heavy shit, mm -hmm. uh, all built up, and you're like, I'm going to write about it and put it on the internet. Like, is it was that a difficult leap to go from thinking a lot about this stuff to writing about it? Well, it wasn't a leap at all because I'd always been writing as well. I mean, uh. Uh, right? So, I, I mean, I'd been writing. Uh, since high school. I was doing the usual sort of embarrassingly bad high school short stories and nonfiction pieces. And you're, it, it, for a writer, there isn't as much creativity as people think. It's garbage in, garbage out. Conventional thinking in, conventional thinking out. Original reading in, original writing <laughs> out. It's, we writers are not that smart. We are not as smart as physicists or mathematicians or people like that. Our originality and creativity depends on what input is coming in. And uh, for writing, I would, I would tell a very similar parallel story. My original writing was so embarrassingly pedestrian 
that it was not worth sharing and the only reason I even shared it was that others were even more freaking terrible. They couldn't string a sentence together without tripping over themselves. So yeah, in um, high school, uh, I wrote a couple of little plays that were performed by my friends in like, you know, school events. I wrote a, several short stories in college. I usually contributed to the uh, dorm magazine and things like that. Uh, I was always writing in um, the startup I worked for in uh, 90, uh, 2000 to 2001, that was an online easing before the term blog became popular. And I was a regular writer and columnist for them. And, what, what were you writing about? Uh, that was an Indian community site. So I was mainly writing about uh, themes related to Indian stuff. That was about, I would say, 50% of my writing. The other 50% was what later would become sort of the ribbon farm-esque style. Of, uh, so for example, I wrote a couple of essays on McLuhan back then. So McLuhan was one of my... Um, uh, non-secretor reading choices. Nobody around me, either the cool crowd, I, the crowd I thought was cool, or the crowd of uh, you know bestseller readers, nobody had ever heard of McLuhan or, or wanted to read him. I had read McLuhan by '96 or something, so I'd written a couple of articles on McLuhan, for example. And at that point, a lot of my writing was, well, just sharing original reading, like you know, reviews of uh, reviews or writing about books that. Um, 99% of people haven't heard of and was, for me, a big inspiration. So I wrote about Fukuyama. I wrote about um, Marshall McLuhan. And then I, I stopped writing there and went and finished my PhD and uh, had a whole course of training and writing in the engineering academic way, which is very helpful training. It teaches sort of a rigor in writing and thinking that was very useful for uh, to me later on. But by the time I started writing Ribbon Farm, though I continued to do like reviews and um, summaries and reactions to unusual books that were um, probably not familiar to anybody, uh, I had read enough and accumulated enough that I could do more than that and, you know, sort of uh, surface um, more original themes by connecting things across like weird reading choices, things like that. And I would say I started developing a true voice with Ribbon Farm, I had the I had the raw material for a true voice by 2000, but I didn't actually start developing a sort of original voice until 2007. And uh, confidence is a huge, huge, huge thing in writing. So your first hit is like you know your uh, first relationship. It's a huge confidence booster that somebody is willing to go on a date with you. Similarly, it's a huge confidence booster that uh, something you write isn't going to be just read by a mom and, well, my mom never actually re reads anything, right? <laughs> but something that isn't just going to be read by your circle of close friends, yeah. but can actually become popular. So for me, that big, huge confidence boost was the Gervais Principle, which got slash started in 2009. And that made a huge difference to me because nothing materially changed in how I thought or how I wrote or what I was reading. Yeah. But just the confidence that I can just, I don't know, sit down at my computer at 6 p.m. one day, down a vodka or two, and in that sort of loosened state of mind, just whip out 3,000 words, and there's a good chance that it'll cause a minor explosion somewhere on the internet. The sort of proof point that that could even happen yeah. was a huge confidence booster, and I think uh, those who sort of have been following my writing since the beginning, they can, they can see the difference in my writing from 2007 to 2009, and then since 2009, where there's a lot more confidence, there's a lot more... Uh, willingness to sort of 
put stuff out there and not care if you're wrong or get ripped apart by uh, others. And that confidence is sort of, I, I would say, the third key ingredient to developing a voice as a writer, which is unique input leads to unique output. So you have to develop the unique reading identity. And well, that naturally leads to unique output. And the other part is the confidence. So when you started writing and when you started having uh, hits, when you had, um, I would say that Ribbon Farm has five or six essays that are like, they probably appear in a lot of Quora threads. <laughs> like they're things that recirculate on the internet that are still being read and talked about. And, um, those are read by the people, especially within Silicon Valley, by many of the people that are being talked about, or at least their industry is being mm -hmm. talked about. Um, it's a very direct connection between the, the audience and the business and industries mm -hmm. there. Um, like, did you always envision Ribbon Farm as something that was tied into you making a living at some level? Yeah, that's a question in a, uh, that, uh, well, the answer is not initially. Initially, it was just, well, I enjoy writing and I'm yeah. just going to write. And even after it became popular enough where I could say that I'm no longer just uh, yet another um, person maintaining a journal online, yeah. I'm actually a blogger. For people uh, who haven't been on Ribbon Farm, this is not a um, fancy, heavily designed website. It, it feels like the work of a person. It's a WordPress mm -hmm. blog, I assume. Yeah, it's a basic WordPress blog. It's a basic blog. WordPress blog. The thing that's remarkable about it, just as someone who might encounter it for the, you know, I'm trying to put people in the the visual mm -hmm. here is how much stuff is on it, how long that stuff is, and sort of what it looks like as a as a growing work. Mm -hmm. uh, well, at this point, uh, I actually write only about a quarter of the articles on yep. there, my resident bloggers. Uh, so uh, Sarah Perry now writes uh, an article a month, so she's actually been writing more consistently than I have, basically. <laughs> th that, that's a test of, uh, I wouldn't say success, but test of influence as a blogger because success to me is still very pragmatically tied to notions of money but it's definitely a, success, a, a sign that um, you're part of the blogosphere when people start referencing you a lot and yes since you brought up Quora um, Quora, Hacker News, all those fora are sort of you know places where you as a currency or a stock get traded Yeah. and uh, when I actually jumped ship in 2011 from Xerox uh, I got my first two clients for consulting off of Quora. And mm. that that had more to do with my Quora answers. For uh, people who don't know what Quora is, it's a it's a website where people uh, pose questions and then various experts respond to them. Or yeah. anyone really can yeah. respond to them. But. There's a direct relationship to the writing and influential people reading it, people with money to spend reading it, and then hiring me as consultant. Every time someone says they're a consultant, I, I sort of glaze over it, and then I like think about it. I'm like, wow, I don't even know what that means. Like, what? What do you do as a consultant? Consultant today is like this ambiguous word that describes like, uh, you know, 50 different legitimate and interesting ways of working and 500 different uh, dumb bullshit ways of working. <laughs> I hope I'm one of the 50 yeah. ways of doing consulting that actually is not bullshit. So I would describe my particular flavor of it. I serve as a sparring partner for people who need somebody to think with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Senior executives are in a very interesting position, especially people who have already uh, achieved all the wealth and sort of uh, personal success that they could care for, and they're now you know, trying to put a dent in the universe and so forth. For them, their peers are generally as smart as them, but are as sort of insider as them, and often their relationships with their peers are uh, not ones where you can have like... Um, open-ended, honest conversations right. and things like that. So being a sparring partner to somebody like that, 
it basically is a different kind of writing in my mind because what you're doing is taking again a unique perspective developed through maybe a decade and a half of um, a relatively idiosyncratic reading and bringing that perspective to bear on a very specific situation. So if I'm working with, say, uh, the CEO of a mid-sized growing company that needs to, I don't know, develop new markets or, you know, typical sure. kind of business challenge, it's useful for somebody like that to have somebody to talk to who can A, talk at their level, B, bring a fresh perspective to the party, which uh, reframes the problems they're thinking about usefully basically gives them a bit of an intellectual workout because one of the surprising learnings for me doing this kind of executive sparring uh, is that executives are so damn busy just running the day-to-day -day of their organizations that even though they're usually extraordinarily smart people who like to read and are curious about broader things, they have no time. And in a way, being able to spar with somebody like me in conversation is their substitute for just having a lot of time to read. So, well, they can rely on all the things that you've read. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, why do we read after all? Why do we yeah. go around reading lots of different things? It's, you know, to feed our curiosity and general expanding our horizons. And if you don't have time to do that, well, one good way to uh, do something else is talk frequently with somebody who does that uh, right. frequently. And that's kind of what my consulting, the bedrock of my consulting is that. It's just work with um, a senior executive, have a phone call with them every few weeks where whatever current problems they're thinking about, we just talk about those problems. And just by virtue of having like a big library in my head that I can reference and sort of, um, you know, throw at whatever they're thinking about, usually they get unstuck. So my sort of consulting tagline, if I have one, is, uh, basically consulting that gets you unstuck from uh, habits of mind or habits of um, organizations. So that's basically what I do as consultant. I mean, I certainly can see when I read something like your, you know, um, your sort of history of the sharing economy and mm -hmm. the companies on it. And if I was in a uh, mid-level shipping company, I'd be like, hey, uh, could you break down my industry in that same manner? Because it probably would be helpful to me in understanding the, the trajectories there. For you personally, since your focus is so heavily in technology in Silicon Valley, when you're doing things like working uh, with Andreessen Horowitz, um, how do you avoid becoming an insider? Do you feel like you have to keep a remove between yourself and these industries in order to still have that value to an executive where you're an outsider? Yeah. Yes, you definitely have to do that because, uh, and it's in both uh, parties' interest because if you do sort of start echoing everything they say and sort of basically get uh, get house trained, you know, like yep. uh, the bureaucrats in the executive branch think of politicians as uh, new unruly dogs to be house trained, you don't want to get house trained by a client because then all the value you bring to them is lost. And well, maybe you can do something from the inside, but if people like me are generally extremely incompetent at doing anything from the inside of <laughs> an organization. So uh, I basically have no value as an insider in most kinds of uh, businesses yeah. or organizations. My All my value is uh, the value I bring as an independent. So yes, you have to do that. And one way you do that is... Uh, not pretend you're above being cognitively captured by a whole thought space because nobody is immune to that. If all your input is coming from powerful, say, venture capitalists, you're going to start thinking like a venture capitalist and echoing what you hear back at them at some point. If all your 
uh, input is coming from a bunch of uh, progressive activists talking about inequality, at some point your mental models are going to be completely theirs and you're going to start echoing what they say. So that's where I think the fox hedgehog uh, typology is very useful because if you're allowing yourself and disciplining yourself to constantly be at the intersection of many divergent streams of um, intellectual influence. It's like creating a check and balance uh, set of forces around yourself where you don't have to sort of uh, make independence of thought and act of willpower because I don't think any of us are that strong. You yeah. don't need to be like a strong-willed uh, Marcus Aurelius type of uh, <laughs> uh, high-virtue person in order to have an independent mind. You have an independent mind by virtue of listening to very different people constantly in about the same uh, level of in terms of quantity. I mean, sheer airtime, the number of words you take into your ears or through your eyes has to be roughly in proportion to the various sources. So that's a big part of it. And uh, just to be high-minded for a second, which I allow myself like five minutes Do of high-minded. I'm in, putting you on the clock. Five minutes. <laughs> ten <tops>. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just heard something. I was at an architecture thing where I was doing a panel uh, in New York yesterday. Uh, apparently, there's something like a Hippocratic Oath for architects where uh, you have to, it says something like, no matter who is paying me, I'm going to keep the public interest in mind, something like that, right? And so architects have uh, an allegiance to, well, serving the public because the buildings they put up are in public spaces and influence the lives of more than the people who are paying them, right? So that's sort of an architecture Hippocratic Oath. Uh, and for a blogger, there is a similar allegiance to public intellectual discourse that's outside of institutions, outside of uh, particular political factions, things like that. I mean, that uh, we don't get paid much. Our income is uh, precarious. All those things apply to us. And the one thing you can do to keep yourself honest is say, my allegiance, yes, is to my client or whoever is paying me. But the other part of my allegiance is I kind of want to keep the blogosphere intellectually fermenting and alive and not captured by, you know, uh, just one or two very strong organizing forces uh, based on money. Um, you've been doing this now for eight years. Um, you have a real cult following on your blog. And um, I didn't even know that like places like Cora, you probably actually ha are doing things other places that I'm not even aware of. So how do you regard that larger audience and their expectations of you as a writer? Do you think about, am I writing this for like my hardcore people who've read every single thing I've ever done? And then this one, like Breaking Smart is sort of for a more general audience, like, because um, your stuff really builds on, on itself. Yeah. So, so on Ribbon Farm, I generally don't give it a second thought. It's like at the back of my mind and I have like good instincts for how an article will play and it's improved over yep. time. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's a self-indulgent article. I'm just writing for myself. Sometimes it's for yep. uh, people who've been with me for a long time. Sometimes it's uh, sort of something interesting for everybody. Uh, when I do something for um, something like Breaking Smart, it's a more conscious process. Um, when I write for other publications, I've written for Aeon a couple of times. Yep. I just wrote a piece for The Atlantic. Uh, there, yeah, you. Uh, I rely on editors, for example, to uh, sort of pull me <laughs> out of my own little world and yeah. make sure that I'm actually speaking to the right people. So I think I think that's just part of the professional competence of uh, being a writer, whether in uh, the journalistic world or the blogosphere. But I think the blogosphere does have a unique characteristic, and I think it 
still exists. It's just grown up and matured and become part of the invisible infrastructure of our world. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think all the agonizing about blogs are going away is complete bullshit. I mean, I, it's thriving more than ever. There's more and more great writing on the internet every single week. I, I agree. mean, your entire business is based I mean, on no, that. Right? Yeah, it just depends on whether you draw any lines between what's a blog, what's a magazine, what's a website. There's certainly a tremendous amount of things that you can convert to text and read on your phone pretty pretty widely out there. Uh, I, right now. I, the distinction is pretty sharp in my mind. You're a blogger if you're talking directly to your audience without the intermediation of an editor who knows the audience better than you. Yeah. That is, to my mind, the only legitimate and valuable role of a good editor yeah. is to represent an audience you yourself don't know well. And when you get when you don't have that kind of editor between you and an audience, yeah. you're a blogger. When when you're doing something like building a career around your, your own writing, but in a, a sort of a triangulated indirect career where it's leading to mm -hmm. other business opportunities, and you're not working for a magazine, I can't say like, oh, you want to read like Venkatesh? New Yorker, just subscribe to New Yorker. Your stuff is in its own pocket. It's occasionally on Aeon. It's in these different places. How do you expect your audience keeps track of you? Um, is that an issue for you? Like keeping people in the loop about what you're doing? I do try to post updates, like I have a piece in the uh, in Aeon or Atlantic, some things like that. But in general, I basically do absolutely no curation of the audience or, you know, I've never done like a minute of market research in my life. <laughs> Which is uh, funny because you write about people who do things like yeah, market I mean, research. That comes in from consulting. I do know how to do those things. I do yeah. know how to like analyze the market. Um, I do know how to like uh, figure out a niche and position and all yeah. those things. I, I've done that sort of thing in other parts of my life. But for me, writing is like 110% opt-in self-selected audience. It's like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. You want to read me, read me. Yeah. You want to follow me around on all the sites I write on, follow me around. If you only like Ribbon Farm and think Breaking Smart is uh, like uh, Silicon Valley bullshit, fine, read Ribbon Farm, don't read Breaking Smart. If you only like Breaking Smart because yeah. you think Ribbon Farm is, uh, you know, uh, up its own backside intellectual bullshit, fine, just read Breaking Smart. So I don't, I, I have no opinion or interest in, controlling the actions of my audience. In a way, you assume that the people who are going to enjoy something like Ribbon Farm are just going to find it eventually. The universe yeah. will like lead them. People are going to find their people uh, eventually. I think so. And that, the internet sort of is very, very state. friendly to that. I mean, once you start understanding the subgraphs and subcultures of the internet, it's a very, very tiny yeah. place. And yes, uh, there are people who, if they are in certain parts of the you know internet social world, they will eventually run into me. And there are people in other parts of the internet where there's almost no chance they'll ever run into me. Mm. And the first is maybe 0.001% of the internet and the rest, other is 99.999. But that 0.001% of the internet is, well, big enough that if I do nothing and just continue writing what I think is interesting, good stuff, it, an audience slowly accumulates. Where do you go from here? You've been doing this seven or eight years. Um, you've taken it to, in, into a bunch of different directions. Do you have large, like longer-term ambitions for the project, or are you improvising and inventing this on the fly as you go? The external side of it, I'm just improvising and making it up as I go. It, to the extent that I define sort of what's next for me kind of uh, things, it tends to be 
small experimental writing projects when I start to feel stuck or stale. Like, I, I mean, I've been doing this sort of, uh, you know, refactored perception thing for like uh, seven years now. And it's sort of um, a certain part of my thinking and writing has sort of played itself out and filled out a certain space. And I both feel tired doing more of that. And it's not as inspired when I do do it. So yes, I keep doing these little experiments. And if one of them works, I do more of it. So the thing, so that's why I think of Ribbon Farm, especially as more of a writing laboratory than a uh, um, sort of a, a thing with a brand and a niche and a market because I, I do really weird stuff. Like I invite Brian to write and there's like equations in blog posts suddenly. Yeah. I'm starting to experiment with fiction. I'm starting to experiment with a comic strip. Some of those things will work, some will not. And I'll double down on the ones that work. Seems like it's good a place to end. Zenny, thank you very much. Venkatesh Rao, I will be back next week. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Venkatesh Rao for finally coming in after years of me harassing him to do so. Uh, thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, my co-host, Max Linsky, and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Creative Live for sponsoring this show. You can go to creativelive.com slash longform to get 20% off any of their classes. And of course, thanks to MailChimp, the people you should be sending your businesses emails with. We'll be back next week. You can always throw us a buck if you feel like it. Longform.org slash donate. That's how we do this show. Sponsors, donors like you. Thank you. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.